Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone by Trevor Leggett This collection of pieces is reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whom the ancient traditions were always young. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone by Trevor Leggett This collection of pieces is reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whom the ancient traditions were always young. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. My name is Judith Clark, and as a long-time student of Zen Buddhism, I have drawn inspiration and encouragement from Trevor Leggett through his talks at the Buddhist Society Summer School and at the Zen Centre in London, through reading and rereading his many books, and, of course, through his living example. So I was delighted when the Trevor Leggett Adhyatma Yoga Trust asked me to read an introduction to this audio version of his book Encounters in Yoga and Zen, and to read some of Trevor's stories. I have found many of Trevor's stories, examples and pointers to be of real practical value in the practice and remember with gratitude the generosity with which he shared his experience, not only in formal talks, but in informal conversations over meals and during the breaks at the summer school. At the end of a talk or a particular example, Trevor would often say, It helped me, so I pass it on. I hope these stories will be of as much help to you as they have been to me. Encounters in Yoga and Zen The Preface Sparks Stories of the type presented here are used in many spiritual schools to a greater or lesser extent. Nearly all teachers make some use of them. I have collected these over the years from a variety of sources. Sometimes reminiscences of a former teacher are buried in an old book or a temple magazine. 
one or two are folk stories. Some are verbally transmitted. Some would be difficult to trace to a source. There are one or two incidents personally experienced, and I have occasionally put a few introductory remarks. Their function is to act as flint and steel in making a light. In this, the flint is gripped in the left hand, with some dry tinder, usually a herb, under the thumb near the edge. Then the steel is struck with a glancing blow across the edge of the flint. There may be no spark. Then one tries again. There may be a spark which does not touch the tinder. Then one tries again. But when a spark does set the tinder smouldering, as must happen sooner or later, it has to be carefully blown on, not too much and not too little, till it glows brightly. Finally, a spill of thin paper can be ignited, and that in turn lights the lamp or fire. If a story here strikes no spark, or if there is a spark which dies away so that it does not recur in the mind, then another can be tried. When one does grip the mind, it should be pondered daily for several weeks to find the deeper points. At the end of the introduction, an example is given of how to focus on one such point. The process corresponds to nurturing the little glow of the tinder. It should not yet be subjected to the strong wind of outside criticism or skepticism, or even constructive suggestion. It must be cherished inwardly. If all goes well and it creates a blaze, then outer winds, however strong, can only increase it. These stories are not the same as Zen koans, in many of which something apparently extraordinarily inappropriate is said, or perhaps done. Just because these are extraordinary, they are good for catching the mind. But afterwards, the light from them has to be applied to daily life. The pieces presented here are often incidents from ordinary life. Not that there are no extraordinary ones, too. The aim is to find realization and inspiration from daily life. Because they are ordinary, it may be harder to focus upon them. But the traditional presentation is skillful at catching at the heart of an attentive reader. In the Jewish tradition, Jesus was the first person known to have made systematic use of the method of riddle. He never spoke to the people except in riddles, says the Gospel. He expected these to be solved. To disciples asking for an explanation, he replied briefly, Are you as dull as the rest? Interested listeners may find a stimulus in the Buddhist priest's comment on pearls and swine later in the book.
His use of the riddles was itself a riddle, echoing and extending the riddle in Isaiah. To those outside, everything comes by way of riddles, so that, as Scripture says, they may look and look, but see nothing. They may hear and hear, but understand nothing. Otherwise, they might turn to God and be forgiven. The Author's Introduction Cloth and Stone Cloth against cloth, or stone against stone. No clear result, and it is meaningless. Catch the flung stone in the cloth. Pin the wind-fluttered cloth with a stone. This verse comes in a scroll of spiritual training belonging to one of the knightly arts in the Far East. In these traditions, instruction is given in the form of vivid images, not in terms of logical categories. It is meant to be a stimulus to living inspiration, not dead analysis. The apparent exactitudes of logic turn out to be of very limited value when applied to life, because then the terms can never be precisely defined. In the verse, the catching cloth stands for what is technically called softness, which is not the same as weakness. The stone stands for hardness, not the same as strength. Softness has a special meaning. It is not merely giving way or doing nothing. There is a strength in softness, but it is not the hard strength of rigidity which has an inherent weakness, namely, incapacity to adapt. There is another verse which illustrates these distinctions. Strong in their softness are the sprays of wisteria creeper. The pine in its hardness is broken by the weak snow. How do these things work in practice? Here is an example from one of the schools of self-defense. You stand on the edge of a cliff, and suddenly you see a powerfully built man rushing at you with outstretched arms to push you off. 
however you may brace yourself, the impetus of his rush will overcome your resistance, and, after a brief check, you will inevitably go over. To brace yourself is hardness, and it loses to greater hardness. This is meeting stone with stone. Yet, if you do nothing but just stand there, weakness, he will easily push you over. Now, suppose that just before his arms touch you, you fall in a heap at his feet. His impetus, not meeting the expected resistance, carries him on unopposed. He trips over you and goes over himself. This is softness, and it defeats hardness. Softness is controlled, skillfully directed, inwardly calm, and prompt. To rate as true softness, it has to be effective in application. Softness must be carefully distinguished from weakness. In the second verse, the snow falls on the wisteria creeper. When it piles up a little, the flexible creeper bends and the snow drops off. It should be noted that the creeper does not give up its root. It retains an inner integrity, but is able to give before the external pressure by changing its posture, so to say. The branches of the pine tree, however, stiffly retaining their fixed attitude, hold the snow as it piles up, and they may be broken. The fact is sometimes a surprise to those who have never seen it happen. Hardness, too, has a role, but it has to be used skillfully, just so much and no more. Pin the wind-fluttered cloth with a stone. The cloth, unguided by human hands, stands for weakness, and then the hardness of the stone is needed to hold it steady against the wind. What is the application in life? Cloth against cloth, stone against stone. No clear result, and it is meaningless. The sense is not to meet weakness with weakness, nor oppose hardness with further hardness. Do not meet cloth with cloth. They are those who, when they become aware of some undesirable characteristic in themselves which hampers their development, say with lethargic resignation, Well, that is how I am. Sometimes they say, That is how God made me. It is His will. This is meeting weakness with further weakness. And... As the verse says, there is no result, and it is meaningless.
Some IQ tests have shown Chinese and Japanese children as the best in the world at them. If it is accepted that to solve such little brain teasers is important for life, the answer for the rest of us is to work harder. The weakness, if it exists, is not to be indignantly denied or resented, but overcome by controlled and skillful hardness. Many great champions in sports began with an inferior natural endowment. They took it as a challenge, and finally surpassed the naturals, most of whom get their successes too early, become complacent, and do not practice enough. Maria Callas did not have a first-rate natural voice. She trained a second-rate instrument. But the intensity of training gave her performances a magnetism which great natural singers have often lacked, and her impact on the world of music was enormous. Michelangelo was early on producing juvenile masterpieces, but the works attributed to Leonardo's youth do not foreshadow the genius that was to come. He drew it forth out of himself by persistent endeavor, ostinato rigore, as he says in his notebooks. The hardness of the stone of will is absolutely necessary to pin the mind cloth, fluttered by a wind of feeling of inherent limitation. The experience of spiritual teachers is that there are almost infinite potentialities in the mind of each man, which can be unfolded by faith and persistent application. Again, when the gale of desire, whipped up by conventional acceptance, everyone is doing it, tries to bear away all self-control, reasonings and counter-persuasions are often helpless. The stone of will to follow tradition must be used to hold it steady. Observation, too, shows how a released cloth riding on the wind, seems at first free and glorious in its flight. But rain comes, and the sky-born cloth begins to fall. It catches on a bramble. Now, when the wind blows more, it is torn. Finally, it always ends up, sodden with slime, in a ditch. The cloth that has been pinned by a stone is not carried away. It remains clean and useful, perhaps to fulfill itself one day by washing the face and hands of a bodhisattva. Whether it is an inner wind or an outer wind that blows, the cloth of mind 
has to be held firm by the stone of will. Do not meet cloth with cloth. Now the other case. Do not meet stone with stone. Take the first story in this book. A young boy loses his father and finally enters a training monastery to try for spiritual realization. An elder pupil resents his keenness, persecutes him, and one day hits him hard on the arm with iron tongs. As it happens, this comes to the notice of the abbot. What is to be done? This is, so to say, a stone flung at the very heart of the young aspirant. A spiritual training centre, and then an actual physical attack by another pupil. One way would be for the teacher to transfer the boy to another temple for a time until the elder pupil had finished the obligatory three years' training and left. That would be meeting the situation, the flung stone, with weakness. It does not catch the stone at all, but runs away. Another solution would be to say, you must simply endure this, all the spiritual heroes of the past have endured such persecutions. The teacher speaks from the heights. Sit here beside me and let us meditate on endurance. This meets hardness with hardness, stone with stone. It can work, but it is liable to produce a hard character. What other method is there? How is the stone of persecution to be caught in the cloth? How is softness to be applied here? One answer is given at the end of the story. The teacher finds a means to come down from the mountaintop and really sit beside the pupil in his distress. Reading or listening to a story like those in this book, the usual course is to come to the end and think, ah, yes, indeed, and then move on. It passes out of the mind and is not recalled. But a real seeker will find that some particular one may keep recurring to him. That is a sign that it has something for him which he has not fully realized, and then it has to be read in a different way, slowly, sentence by sentence, 
and ultimately, word by word. If not too long, it is best to learn it by heart. A deeper point must be sought in it, and a still further one beyond that. As an example, here is a story which first appeared in my first Zen reader, and which has found its way into some anthologies. I have sometimes heard it discussed, and it was clear that some who liked it had not thought of going further into it. So they missed half the point. Here it is. A young man, who had a bitter disappointment in life, went to a remote monastery and said to the abbot, I am disillusioned with life and wish to attain enlightenment to be freed from these sufferings. But I have no capacity for sticking long at anything. I could never do long years of meditation and study and austerity. I should relapse and be drawn back to the world again, painful though I know it to be. Is there any short way for people like me? There is, said the abbot, if you are really determined. Tell me, what have you studied? What have you concentrated on most in your life? Why, nothing really. We were rich and I did not have to work. I suppose the thing I was really interested in was chess. I spent most of my time at that. The abbot thought for a moment, and then said to his attendant, Call such and such a monk, and tell him to bring a chessboard and men. The monk came with the board, and the abbot set up the men. He sent for a sword, and showed it to the two. Oh, monk, he said, you have vowed obedience to me as your abbot, and now I require it of you. You will play a game of chess with this youth. And if you lose, I shall cut off your head with this sword. But I promise that you will be reborn in paradise. If you win, I shall cut off the head of this man. Chess is the only thing he has ever tried hard at. And if he loses, he deserves to lose his head also. They looked at the abbot's face and saw that he meant it. He would cut off the head of the loser. They began to play. With the opening moves, the youth felt the sweat trickling down to his heels as he played for his life. The chessboard became the whole world. He was entirely concentrated on it. At first, he had somewhat the worst of it, but then the other made an inferior move and he seized his chance to launch a strong attack. As his opponent's position crumbled, he looked covertly at him. He saw a face of intelligence, and sincerity, worn with years of austerity and effort. He thought of his own worthless life, 
and a wave of compassion came over him. He deliberately made a blunder, and then another blunder, ruining his position and leaving himself defenceless. The abbot suddenly leant forward and upset the board. The two contestants sat stupefied. There is no winner and no loser, said the abbot slowly. There is no head to fall here. Only two things are required. And he turned to the young man. Complete concentration and compassion. You have today learnt them both. You were completely concentrated on the game, but then, in that concentration, you could feel compassion and sacrifice your life for it. Now stay here a few months and pursue our training in this spirit, and your enlightenment is sure. He did so and got it. One of the things in the story that is not clear to most readers, in fact, it never occurs to them, is this. The man had been rich, but had never bothered to use his money to relieve the sufferings of the poor, whom he must have seen often. He spent all his time on a trivial amusement. Where did the wave of compassion come from? He had not felt it before. A time when one's own life is in danger is the least likely occasion for a sudden feeling of compassion. Even in law, if two men are drowning in the sea and there is a tiny raft which will support only one, it is not murder or any crime at all to push off the other and leave him to drown. It is permissible in order to save one's own life. So how is it that the hero suddenly felt compassion and became truly heroic? It is only one of the deeper points, but a very important one. The story first appeared over twenty years ago, and has, I imagine, now shot its bolt so it may be allowable to use it as an example to illustrate the method of focusing on a point. However, it is against tradition to give more than a hint. I propose simply to break up the story in a special way, which will, to those interested, provide that hint.
A young man, who had a bitter disappointment in life, went to a remote monastery and said to the abbot, I am disillusioned with life and wish to attain enlightenment to be freed from these sufferings. But I have no capacity for sticking long at anything. I could never do long years of meditation and study and austerity. I should relapse and be drawn back to the world again, painful though I know it to be. Is there any short way for people like me? There is, said the abbot, if you are really determined. Tell me, what have you studied? What have you concentrated on most in your life? Why, nothing really. We were rich, and I did not have to work. I suppose the thing I was really interested in was chess. I spent most of my time at that. The abbot thought for a moment, and then said to his attendant, Call such and such a monk, and tell him to bring a chessboard and men. The monk came with the board, and the abbot set up the men. He sent for a sword, and showed it to the two. Oh, monk, he said, you have vowed obedience to me as your abbot, and now I require it of you. You will play a game of chess with this youth, and if you lose, I shall cut off your head with this sword. But I promise that you will be reborn in paradise. If you win, I shall cut off the head of this man. Chess is the only thing he has ever tried hard at, and if he loses, he deserves to lose his head also. They looked at the abbot's face and saw that he meant it. He would cut off the head of the loser. They began to play. With the opening moves, the youth felt the sweat trickling down to his heels as he played for his life. The chessboard became the whole world. He was entirely concentrated on it. At first, he had somewhat the worst of it. But then the other made an inferior move. And he seized his chance to launch a strong attack. As his opponent's position tumbled, he looked covertly at him. He saw a face of intelligence and sincerity, worn with years of austerity and effort. He thought of his own worthless life, and a wave of compassion came over him. He deliberately made a blunder. And then another blunder, ruining his position and leaving himself defenceless. The abbot suddenly leant forward and upset the board. 
the two contestants sat stupefied. There is no winner and no loser, said the abbot slowly. There is no head to fall here. Only two things are required. And he turned to the young man. Complete concentration and compassion. You have today learnt them both. You were completely concentrated on the game, but then, in that concentration, you could feel compassion and sacrifice your life for it. Now stay here a few months and pursue our training in this spirit, and your enlightenment is sure. He did so and got it. The first story in this collection is Iron Rods. A boy of twelve in Japan lost his father, to whom he was much attached. The shock and desolation turned his mind to Buddhism and he asked his uncle, now looking after the family and himself a devout Buddhist, whether he could enter a temple. The uncle believed that the change in the heart was permanent, and took him to a training temple where the famous teacher accepted him. The boy was very keen, and when the uncle made one of his monthly visits to see how he was getting on, the teacher remarked, "'He is trying with everything he has.' He is making good progress. In this temple, there happened to be at the time a monk of about nineteen, whose family owned a rich temple, for which he was destined to become the priest for life. As can happen, his initial interest in Buddhism had become secondary to his anticipation of the easy life he would have once he got through the four or five years of the training. Naturally, he did not like the assiduous studying and service of the little boy, because it reminded him obscurely of what he himself might have done. One day, in the winter, he shouted to him to bring some water for the kettle. In a traditional temple, this hung on a big chain above the charcoal fire, which is stoked by means of a pair of iron rods rather like long chopsticks. As the boy was putting the water down, he was shouted at again and gave a start which spilled a little of the water. Clumsy idiot! yelled the senior boy, and picking up the iron rods, hit him hard on the arm just above the wrist. Perhaps he hit harder than intended, or perhaps not, but in any case it was quite a severe blow. The small boy kept back his tears till he was dismissed, 
but then rushed out of the temple into a bamboo grove to cry. It so happened that the uncle was making his visit that day, and he saw his nephew running into the trees. He went quickly after him and asked, What's happened? Why are you crying? It's nothing. No, it's something. And what's that on your arm? An ugly mark was beginning to come up. Oh, I knocked it. That's not the mark of a knock. Someone's hit you. He dragged the boy with him into the temple and pushed in to see the teacher. Look at this. He's been hit, and you said yourself that he was keen and trying his very best. This is supposed to be a center of spiritual training, and look what happens. The teacher got up and fetched a book of sermons of the Buddha, found a particular place, and handed it to the boy, saying, Read from here. The uncle sat fuming while his nephew read in a choked voice. When the sentence came, one who practices endurance will be a spiritual hero. The teacher said, Read that sentence again, slowly, and we'll meditate on it together. The uncle shouted, It's easy to meditate when you haven't been hit. Yes, said the teacher, It's easier to meditate when you haven't been hit. He picked up the iron rods from the charcoal fire in his own room and hit with all his force on his own arm. Now, he said gently, let's meditate together. One who practices endurance will be a spiritual hero. The Preacher A famous preacher of Vedanta had a pupil of sixteen years who, under his instruction, acquired a very fine knowledge of the philosophy. He did not teach him rhetoric, as he did not consider that the boy would make a good speaker. One day, however, the master suddenly became ill just before he had to address a gathering. On an impulse, he sent the boy to speak in his place, telling him to explain the circumstances and then try to give a plain exposition of the fundamentals, as he had been taught. To his surprise, it was reported to him that the speech by his pupil had been a great success. A little later, kindly friends hinted that it had even been said that the pupil was a better speaker than his master. Absurd, of course, but we felt you ought to know. The preacher pondered for a little while, and then set the pupil to remake the garden of the house and build a shed in it, telling him that he should know about ordinary life as the layman lived it, and not only about abstractions. On another occasion, when the master was again ill, 
he simply sent an excuse by the hand of the boy, who passed it on and returned at once. After three months of this, the preacher noticed that his pupil, who had seemed rather downcast, had recovered his serenity and cheerfulness. It has been a test for him, he confided to a close friend, a man of spiritual discernment. He must have been very disappointed, but he has overcome that now. He has done well in this test. And how do you think you have done? asked the friend. The Wine Pot The final word of Mahayana Buddhism, as expressed in the Garland Sutra of China, is that samsara, this world of suffering, is nirvana, and the passions are enlightenment, bodhi. It is only illusion that causes us to see differences between them. Samsara is nirvana, the passions are enlightenment. This formula has sometimes been taken as a sort of slogan, in isolation from the spirituality of the rest of the sutra, like the remark of St. Paul, to the pure, all things are pure. A man who set himself up as a Buddhist teacher began preaching the slogan that passions are enlightenment, claiming to exemplify it by himself drinking heavily and frequenting brothels. This was reported to a real saint who remarked briefly, No one who is a slave to passions can claim to see them as enlightenment. The teacher came storming round to the home of the saint and shouted, You people claim to teach the doctrine that samsara is nirvana and the passions are enlightenment, but you are afraid to live it. You cower behind the little wall of your petty prohibitions and commandments. Do this, don't do that all the time. By giving all these silly rules, you are denying what you teach. Now I actually live it. Perhaps you can see my life as passions, but I see it as enlightenment, following the flow of change which is the Buddha nature. That's the difference between us. I am a real teacher because I live it. You are not because you don't. The saint said, this kind of teaching will be of no use to the people. Why not? Why not? cried the teacher. We won't argue about it, the saint told him. But there is something else. We don't drink here, 
but we do keep some wine for guests who may come. Now, some time back, I was given a little of a very rare wine. Would you like to give me your opinion of it? Why, yes! Yes! The saint went out to give instructions to his attendant. As he came back into the room, he turned his head and called back, Absolutely clean, mind! When the wine came, the guest could smell the delicious fragrance of it. But to his amazement, it was served to him in what would correspond in the West to an old chipped chamber pot. What's this? he cried. Oh, don't mind that. It's absolutely clean, I assure you. Absolutely. What does it matter what the wine is served in? It's a very rare wine, they say. The guest tried to drink, but found he could not. He put the chamber pot down and said quietly, Why are you doing this? The saint replied, This vessel has been specially made absolutely clean, and the wine is a choice one. But you cannot drink it because of the form of the vessel. Now you are serving the wine of the Garland Sutra in the vessel of your life, which may or may not be absolutely pure, but in any case is of a form associated with filth. The people will not be able to accept a teaching presented like that. The guest changed his way of life. Mirrors A young and able businessman was hampered in his career by sudden outbursts of fury when he was contradicted in front of others, at a board meeting, for instance. He was making some attempts at spiritual training, and he consulted one of the senior members of the group. I know you're going to tell me to count backwards from 29 or something like that, but the fact is that it's so strong that all that just gets blown away. I see a sort of red mist coming in front of my eyes. Isn't there something a bit more positive for people like me? The senior looked at him, smartly dressed and clearly very careful about his appearance. There might be for someone like you, as you say, he replied. But you have to be willing to get a bit of a shock. Keep a little mirror in your pocket. And when you see that red mist coming up, just go out of the room for a moment and look in the mirror. The businessman did this next time he was contradicted. When he saw in the glass his face contorted with rage, lips swollen and eyes injected with blood, the ugliness of it was like a shower of icy water. 
he never again lost his temper in public. A teacher was having a meal with two pupils of some years' standing, a man and a woman. The man knew that the woman, who had a witty tongue, occasionally used to make amusing but biting comments at the expense of others, and he suspected that she was not above inventing some details to give an extra edge to her little aggressions. Though generally likeable and kind-hearted, she could not resist taking an occasional opening which presented itself. During the meal, the teacher suddenly launched into a stream of vicious criticisms of someone well known to all of them, producing wild slanders and accusations which they knew must be untrue. After a little, the two pupils cried out in protest. Oh, teacher, you can't say that! The teacher's flow stopped, as if a tap had been turned off. After a little silence, he began calmly to speak of something else. The two went home thoughtfully. After some weeks, the man noticed that the woman was very careful about her comments in regard to other people. In particular, she never gave rein to her talent for impromptu sarcasms. He realised that she had seen herself in what the teacher had done. He had held up a mirror before her. And because she had done some training, she had been able to realise that it was a reflected image and not a characteristic of the mirror itself. He thought how privileged he had been to be a witness of this spiritually inspired instruction. A fault, he pondered, of which he had been entirely unconscious, had been brought to light without direct criticism, which might have made her defensive. But how extraordinary that she could have been so completely unaware of it before. Then he thought... I should not take this as applying to her alone. I should reflect whether I myself have ever at all offended in the same respect. Hardly. I make jokes, of course, but no one could resent... Well, perhaps once. No, twice. No more than that. Oh, dear, dear, dear. And now, he thought that perhaps it had been she who had been privileged to be a witness of spiritually inspired instruction. Fried Eels You've often told us in your sermons that the Buddha nature in all is always perfect and their nature loses nothing even if the mind is disturbed and gains nothing when the mind is calm. Why, then, do you tell people to control their passions and acquire peace of mind? On your own showing, 
nothing real is lost, for the true nature can never be lost or even diminished. They think that they lose something, and that causes distress. Then simply tell them, nothing has been lost. It is wrong to treat it as if they did lose something by letting their mind run wild, and then tell them how to control it. Let me tell you something that happened to me once. I was passing one of those fried eel shops. You know what a delicious smell there is when they are cooking. I didn't want any eels, but without thinking, I inhaled a deep breath and said, Ah, as I passed by. A little boy came running after me. I saw you, I saw you, he cried. Daddy says that smells our business, and I saw you sniffing it up there. You're stealing our business. Give it back. Oh, dear. So I am, I told him. I didn't think. Of course, I must give it back. And I let out a big breath slowly and smiled at him. He went back satisfied. It wouldn't have done to upset him. When he grows up, he'll remember it, perhaps, and laugh and maybe think kindly of what he remembers of a Buddhist priest. What harm will that do? A Tremendous Lot A lecturer on Vedanta made a tour of the towns of northern India, dazzling the audiences with his erudition. He had a phenomenal memory, and his replies to questions were a revelation. The disciple of a traditional teacher went to one of these lectures, and was much impressed. On his return, he asked his teacher about the lecturer. Is he really as good as he seems? How much does he really know about Vedanta? Oh, a tremendous lot, was the answer. In fact, everything. And that's all. The Pure Land In China and Japan, many millions of Buddhists have been, and in Japan still are, devotees of the Pure Land Doctrine. According to this, a Bodhisattva made a great vow which in time fulfilled itself as the manifestation of the Buddha Amitabha, Infinite Light, who created a Pure Land Paradise in the West for those who would take his name with faith. From this pure land, it was easy to attain final nirvana. An old lady of this faith was walking along the road 
when she met a Zen master, who said to her, On your way to the pure land, eh, Granny? She nodded. Holy Amitabha's there, waiting for you, I expect. She shook her head. Not there, said the Zen master. The Buddha's not in his pure land. Where is he then? She tapped twice over her heart and went on her way. The Zen master opened his eyes wide in appreciation and said, You are a real pure lander. The Bridge A blind man lived in a village in the deep mountains. He was not afraid of the mountain paths, which he had known since childhood, and when spring came and the snows melted, he used to pride himself on being the first to go to visit his brother in another village not far away, but separated by a deep gorge about twelve feet across. The state maintained a small footbridge across it, consisting of three wide planks, driven into the earth on either side, with a small wooden handrail. One autumn, when the blind man made his last trip that year, he noticed that the planks were becoming shaky because the earth was crumbling away. He mentioned this to the village headman, who saw the government inspector when he made his rounds. The latter promised that the bridge would be repaired for the next year. When spring came, however, the blind man had a mild sickness, which kept him in bed a week. The village postmaster sent a telegram to the brother so that he should not worry, and when the blind man was up again, he sent another to say that he would definitely pay the visit the next day. He set out, feeling the warmth of the spring sun, and walking confidently till he came to the bridge. He moved down the little steps cut into the earth and felt for the bridge with his foot. To his horror, he found that there was now only one shaky plank and no handrail at all. He realized that not merely had the old bridge not been repaired, but a winter storm had carried most of it away. However, he had sent his telegram, and he was too proud to turn back. He got down on all fours and crawled across it, sweating as he heard the cataract roaring below. When he got to the other side and arrived at his brother's, he told his story. But the bridge has been repaired, surely, said the brother and they went back the little distance together. The brother told him, The new bridge is a splendid wide one, driven into solid rock a little further down, just six inches. It's been newly painted. There's a notice up on the bank saying, 
Until the paint is dry, please use the plank which has been left for you. Of course they know anyone could easily walk across the plank. Yes, groaned the blind man. Easy if you know that there's a wide bridge six inches below. But if you don't know, it's all you can do to wriggle across, clinging to it and pouring sweat with each inch. It's the same thing. But if you're blind, it's not the same thing. The Fourth Truth An enthusiast was explaining about Buddhism to a friend, and told him, Perhaps I can best give the spirit of it by one of the traditional stories. The Bodhisattva, that is, the Buddha-to-be, was walking past a mountain, pondering the great questions, when he heard a mighty voice crying, All beings must die! It seemed that heaven and earth were resounding with the words. The Buddha-to-be had already realized this truth in his own meditations, and he looked round to see where the voice came from. As his gaze turned to the mountain, the same great voice cried, this is the law of all existence. The Buddha-to-be perceived that the voice came from the top of the mountain. He climbed it to find that it was an extinct volcano. At the bottom of the crater, deep like an abyss, was coiled a huge dragon. As the Buddha-to-be looked down on it, the dragon opened its great mouth and roared, There is a way beyond the law of extinction. Then it was silent. The Buddha-to-be shouted down, You have declared three truths and I have realized these in my own meditations. But I could go no further than this. Is there another truth? Is there a fourth truth which you have not declared? There is, cried the dragon. But I am hungry and will not declare it unless I am fed. If you will throw yourself down here to me, I will roar out the fourth truth as you pass through the air, and you will know it for that instant. So great was the Buddha-to-be's desire for truth that he at once threw himself down. And, as he fell, the dragon opened his great mouth and roared the last truth, the fourth and final truth. On hearing it, the Buddha-to-be became a Buddha, but his body fell into the dragon's mouth.
as it did so, the dragon changed into the form of a god and caught the Buddha. That was how the Buddha learnt the final truth. How wonderful, said the friend. But tell me, what was that fourth and final truth to obtain which the Buddha-to-be was ready to sacrifice his life? Oh, well, um, I don't remember it just at the moment. But isn't it a beautiful story? The Vase A young brahmachari in India was very high-spirited and tended to be happy-go-lucky in carrying out tasks. The teacher warned him about it, but he found it difficult to change. One day he said to the teacher, Master, in the sermon the other day on karma, you said that if the karma supporting his present life had exhausted itself, a man would die. Yes, that is right. But suppose everyone took very great care of him. Surely he could live just a little longer? No. If his span of life has come to an end, it will come to an end. And you said, teacher, that it applies not only to man, but to everything. Yes. If a thing's karma is to perish, it must perish. Well, said the boy, I was dusting in the hall this morning, and that vase of Ganges water, which you brought back from your pilgrimage, and which you were keeping on the shelf to use to sprinkle on the people at the New Year's ceremony, its karma was to be broken and spilt, and it has been broken and spilt. It had to happen, because that was its karma. The karma that supported its existence had come to an end. Yes, replied the teacher, looking at him, it had to happen because the karma that supported it had come to an end. If you had not been so careless dusting that shelf, it would have fallen over anyway. Perhaps a monkey would have got into the hall, or there might have been one of those little earthquakes which we have from time to time. It would have happened, certainly. But it happened through you. So you are responsible. Your carelessness was the agent through which that karma manifested. Now, we are going next week to see those wonderful caves at Ajanta, but as a token of repentance, you are repentant, aren't you? You had better not go. You can stay at home and meditate on carefulness. The boy's face fell. They had all heard of the wonders of Ajanta. However, continued the master, you can think it over, and if by tomorrow afternoon you can give me one sound reason why you should not pay the penalty for your great carelessness, which will result in disappointment for a number of people, then you can go after all.
The next day the brahmachari said, I cannot find any reason. I was at fault, and I have to accept the penalty as the result of the bad karma I have created. It is right. I should not go. The teacher smiled. I will give you a reason. It is true that you have been at fault, and your karma will impose a penalty on you. But there is no reason why I should be the agent through which that karmic result should manifest. You have accepted responsibility, and I can take this opportunity of exercising forgiveness. That will create good karma for both of us. Perhaps the good karma will be that we shall both see Ajanta. The Sieve A group of devotees invited a master of meditation to the house of one of them to give them instruction. He told them that they must strive to acquire freedom from strong reactions to the events of daily life, an attitude of habitual reverence, and the regular practice of a method of meditation which he explained in detail. The object was to realize the one divine life pervading all things. In the end, you must come to this realization not only in the meditation period, but in daily life. The whole process is like filling a sieve with water. He bowed and left. The little group saw him off, and then one of them turned to the others, fuming. That's as good as telling us that we'll never be able to do it. Filling a sieve with water, I ask you. That's what happens now, isn't it? At least it does with me. I go to hear a sermon, or I pray or I read one of the holy books, or I help the neighbours with their children and offer the merit to God, or something like that, and I feel uplifted. My character does improve for a bit. I don't get so impatient, and I don't gossip so much. But it soon drops off, and I'm just like I was before. It is like water in a sieve, he's right there. But now he's telling us this is all we shall ever be able to do. They pondered on the image of the sieve without getting any solution which satisfied them all. Some thought he was telling them that people like themselves in the world could expect only a temporary upliftment. Some thought he was just laughing at them. Some thought 
He was telling them there was something fundamentally wrong with their ideas. Others thought he might be referring to something in the classics, which he had expected them to know. They looked for references to a sieve, without success. In the end, the whole thing dropped away from all of them, except one woman, who made up her mind to see the master. He gave her a sieve and a cup, and they went to the nearby seashore, where they stood on a rock, with the waves breaking round them. Show me how you fill the sieve with water, he said. She bent down, held the sieve in one hand, and scooped the water into it with the cup. It barely appeared at the bottom of the sieve, and then was gone. It's just like that with spiritual practice too, he said. While one stands on the rock of I-ness and tries to ladle the divine realization into it, that's not the way to fill the sieve with water or the self with divine life. How do you do it then? she asked. He took the sieve from her hand and threw it far out into the sea where it floated momentarily and then sank. Now it's full of water, he said, and it will remain so. That's the way to fill it with water, and it's the way to do spiritual practice. It's not ladling little cupfuls of divine life into the individuality, but throwing the individuality far out into the sea of divine life. Pearls Before Swine Sometimes from an unexpected quarter, one can get a new light on a very familiar phrase, so that it shows a completely different meaning. One of the best-known texts in the Bible is the one about the pearls and swine. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rend you. Now one can see that the pigs won't value pearls, because they don't know what they are. But why should they turn on you, and rend you? I'd always vaguely supposed this was a symbol of mindless malice, towards what is felt to be spiritually superior. But that idea must be wrong. If they don't know the pearls are valuable, they won't know there's anything superior to resent. In 
I used to take part in a weekly radio dialogue with a Japanese Buddhist priest in the studio of the Asahi Broadcasting Corporation in Osaka. He was famous for ruthlessly castigating dishonesty, including the corruption of Japanese politicians of the time. His nickname was Poison Tongue, though he was always very pleasant in our interviews. He once said to me, If I don't say something sharp, people are disappointed. The Profumo scandal broke when I was there, and he asked why Profumo had had to resign. I said it wasn't because he had a mistress, but because he told a lie to the House of Commons. To my amazement, he shouted, Bravo, Britain! I didn't know what to say and kept quiet. He went on, Yes, a British cabinet minister tells one lie and has to resign. But every time a Japanese cabinet minister opens his mouth, it's a lie. That was the sort of thing he said. Well, the phrase about pearls and swine came up in one of these discussions. Like many Buddhist priests, he knew the New Testament. The Japanese version is straightforward. Do not throw pearls to pigs, for fear they tread them underfoot and then turn on you and bite you. I said, it just shows the mindless spite of people who can't understand. To my surprise, he answered, no, it doesn't show that at all. You are condemning the pigs, but Christ is blaming the man who gives teachings too high or difficult for his hearers of that time and place. Pigs aren't vicious. The meaning is, don't throw pearls before swine because they will think it's food. They try to eat it, but find it's like stones. Naturally, they're angry and turn on you. It's no fault in the pigs. It's your fault for throwing them what they can't eat. Don't throw pearls to swine. It's not fair on the swine. Help, no help. Sometimes a new idea can change the whole landscape of endeavor, so to speak. Everything appears in quite a different light. This applies in most fields of human activity, but in the case of spiritual endeavors, it has some special overtones. Take the case of doing certain jobs for the spiritual group. Naturally, everyone would like to choose their job. Someone good at adding would like to do the accounts, and someone good at gardening would like to help in the garden. But as the Christian saying has it, a cross chosen 
is not a true cross. To do what one can do well, where others can see it, is an assertion of personality, and it has not much value as a discipline, though the group may get some benefit from it. Even that benefit is usually offset by the unconscious arrogance of the expert, perpetually putting others right, or taking things off their hands to do them better. Reason in the service of the ego, or Mephistopheles, argues that it must be best to offer one's service in a field where one can make a really significant contribution. But while there is a feeling, I am making a really significant contribution, training has not begun. If all goes well, however, some students at least will begin to undertake things which they cannot do well either at a suggestion from someone, or because they perceive a need. The accountant helps in the garden, perhaps enthusiastically cleaning the stones by scrubbing off moss that has been carefully cultivated for years, and appearing wantonly destructive. The gardener helps with the petty cash, and gets the totals wrong, appearing, well... After all, where is the money going? Training has begun. Not easy, but then no one ever said it would be. The service is undertaken in a spirit of offering. For a time, it may bring a sort of self-sacrificing joy, but usually it becomes a consciously performed act of dedication to an unpleasant or at least boring task. The performer sees his time out and then quits with a feeling of, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if all goes well, the day comes when the landscape changes. Let me give a concrete example. The cushions, of two sorts, were kept in a large cupboard in one corner of the training hall. There were meetings of different kinds, with different arrangements of the cushions. So, shortly before a meeting, they were all brought out and arranged in four big piles against one of the walls. Then, the arrangers could easily take them and lay them out. To make these preliminary piles was the job of one fairly new member of the Sangha. It was also his job to put them away afterwards. One day, when a meeting had just ended, he was told by a senior that there was to be another meeting of a different and unusual kind in half an hour. He stood irresolute, and as the senior looked at him, he said, There's no real point in putting them in piles just for ten minutes, is there? It will be just as easy for them to rearrange them from where they are. Probably a lot of them will stay put. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have we something else to do? asked the other. Well, could you tell me something about what came up in the sermon the other day? About the Buddha who lives for a thousand years, and the other Buddha who lives for only one day? Yes, certainly, said the senior. And there's a Buddha who only lives for ten minutes. And he began to pick up the cushions and stack them into the usual piles. The two worked together in silence, and in ten minutes the cushions were in their piles perfectly aligned against the wall in the bear hall. They stood back and looked at them, and the senior remarked, He only lives ten minutes, but now his life has had its meaning. Then the other assistants came in and began to take them down, to rearrange them. The moment of looking at the cushions seemed to stand out in the mind of the junior. The cushions brilliantly clear, as if they had been in a shaft of sunlight. After that, he did not feel impatient with small chores, or think, is it really worth doing? He felt each time, the Buddha lives only so long. Now his life has been fulfilled. He felt the Buddha in himself. And then, gradually, the feeling wore off. He could sometimes revive it by recalling that first moment, but slowly it disappeared as a living inspiration. This kind of thing very often happens, and people on a spiritual path become familiar with it. Sometimes they get vaguely resentful and even embittered. When they feel a stir of spiritual life in them, Mephistopheles whispers, Remember how many times this has happened before, and remember how it all went off afterwards? Like a little drug, isn't it? You feel better for a bit, but then it goes off and there's a reaction, and life is even greyer than before. There are those who, under the pressure of these insinuations, give up making serious efforts. It can be a help to look at the same situation in other fields, and, for some people, a physical example is a good one to awaken a clear awareness of what is going on. My brother was a brilliant amateur golfer, also a fine teacher, who used to be pestered for instruction by a keen 15 handicap golfer with the besetting fault of moving his head several inches during the swing. My brother told me, he won't do the training to get a proper balance, because he thinks there's some little secret which will do it all for him. Anyway, I'm going to shut him up for a bit. He apparently directed him to fix a long wooden rod to the side of a shed in his garden 
with a metal ring on the end, so that it would lightly press on the top of his head as he took a golf stance. He told him, Now practice swinging, but always keeping that ring pressing on your head. There was silence from the golfer for several weeks. If they happened to pass, he just smiled mysteriously and nodded. I learned that his golf had improved, because his head no longer moved so much. But some weeks later still, there was a new development. My brother told me, He has made another metal ring, just like the one on the stick, and he wears it inside his golf cap. He says it helps to keep his head still. I said, but that's absurd. The ring will move with his head. He said, not completely absurd. As a matter of fact, the feel of it reminds him of when he is in his garden with the stick. It does keep his head relatively still, but it won't last. Sure enough, after a month, the golfer was back with his old trouble. Perhaps his head was waving about a little less, but it still ruined his golf. I asked my brother for his analysis, and he told me, Well, it was only an idea. At the beginning, that idea was associated with the stick, which really did keep his head still, but only in the garden. Then he tried the ring in his cap, and at first the pressure of it was associated only with the garden. So it did keep his head still a lot of the time. But of course, sometimes he moved his head from old habit, and now the pressure of the ring under his cap came to be associated with that as well. Soon it had both associations, and then it wasn't any use to him any more. It was only an artificial means, only an idea. What he has to get is balance, which would keep his head still properly and naturally, but he won't do the practice for that. He'll keep wearing the ring under his cap, though. They never give up any of these superstitions. It'll be a good luck charm, reminding him of the days when he did hit a few straight ones. In the same way, a spiritual incident, or a text perhaps, can be a great inspiration for a time, but if it remains only an idea, the effect wears off. After that, to keep running it over in the mind is like the golfer's metal ring, only a good luck charm, without living effect. The ideas are not useless, they can be a great help, and, for many, an absolute necessity in waking up in inspiration and energy. But to rely on these fixed things as a substitute for inner life will always lead to disappointment.
They are pools, even lakes, whereas what is wanted is a bubbling spring. The Buddha's Fingers A Buddhist nun in Japan, who by her strong character, far-sightedness and sympathetic persuasion, had a great influence in the community where she lived, was asked how she came to give her life to Buddhism. She said that she had lost her parents when a small child and had been brought up by her aunt, a nun, in charge of a temple. The aunt was very busy with charitable work and could not give the child as much time as she would have liked. She took the little girl into the temple and they stood before the Buddha image in which the Buddha is seated with the hands joined in the position called Meditation on the Dharma World. The right hand is laid on the left one. Both index fingers are bent, and the thumb of each hand joins the index finger to form a rough circle. She presented the child to the Buddha and asked him to watch over her. When they were outside, the aunt said, If you feel you have done something wrong, which would make the Buddha angry, at once... Try to do something good to show your repentance. Run and help someone, or do a little bit of cleaning or tidying up. Then go and look at the Buddha. If he is angry with you, his fingers will make two sharp angles. If he has forgiven you, they will be the two circles as they are now. This made a big impression. I can remember many times rushing to the temple and hastily sweeping the garden for a few minutes and then creeping in, hardly daring to look at the Buddha's fingers. I can't tell you the relief when I saw they were circles and I knew I was forgiven. At this point, one of her listeners demurred, arguing, I don't approve of using this sort of superstitious falsehood to control the actions of children. They only react against it all when they find out they have been deceived. Didn't you, yourself, have a reaction of anger and scepticism when you found out that the fingers of the Buddha never move at all? The nun replied, Oh, it wasn't a falsehood. My aunt would never have told a falsehood. When I found that the Buddha never does move his fingers, I realized that the Buddha always forgives. Even at the moment of weakness or sin, the Buddha forgives. He is never angry. And it made me feel that I didn't want to cause the Buddha to forgive and forgive. I wanted to live so that he would not have to forgive. It was a great help in some crises of temptation and fear. 
That's what my aunt wanted me to understand by the fingers. Gifts. In the sermon, the preacher said that a gift must be not only proper in its time and place and recipient, but the heart of the giver must be pure. If there is a desire for recognition, or for a return of any kind, or even just a feeling of superiority, the gift will be tainted, and, in the long run, will not do the intended good. Afterwards, one of the listeners said to an experienced senior, I can't see that. I can understand that something wrong in the heart of a giver might spoil the merit of the gift for him, but it won't make any difference to the receiver. If a man's hungry, it doesn't matter to him whether he gets some food from a saint or from the greatest villain alive. He just wants the food. The senior made no reply, but began to walk faster on their way home under the hot sun. The junior felt he would like to stop for a drink at one of the little tea houses by the side of the road, but the other hurried past. Finally, when they were both sweating, the senior paused at a little restaurant and said, Wouldn't you like an ice drink? They sat down at one of the outside tables, and the proprietor brought the two iced drinks on a tray. The junior could see the beads of water condensed on the outside of the glasses, and his parched throat yearned towards the drink. Just a minute, said the senior, and he went to a little puddle near them and dabbled his fingers into it. Then he came back thrust the slimy fingers deep into one of the glasses and passed it across, saying smilingly, Lovely and cool. The Backhander Traditionally and historically, the Chinese have not been fond of fighting. They have generally rated the warrior's role as something undesirable, though sometimes necessary. They could fight well when needed. Confucius remarked, I do not like to fight, but if I must fight, I win. But they do not think that a warrior, for instance, is specially suited for spiritual training, as was thought in India, where the Buddha came from a warrior line. 
and in Japan, where Zen first came in through the warriors of Kamakura. In the classic of Tao, one of the most ancient Chinese scriptures, it is said that the fighting man is an ill-omened instrument, and the way of heaven has no love for him. Yet sometimes it has to make use of him. A great Japanese warrior commented on this. The bow and arrow, the swords short and long, are unblessed tools of fighting and of ill omen. Therefore, as the heavenly way is a way of giving life, and these are the contrary, being means of killing, they really are instruments of ill omen. They can be said to participate in transgression of the way of heaven, and yet, when it is unavoidable, making use of them to kill people is also said to be the way of heaven. How can this be? With the breeze of spring, flowers bloom, and their colours vie with each other. With the frost of autumn, leaves fall, and the trees are desolate. This is fulfilment and falling away in the way of heaven. When a thing is completely fulfilled, heaven strikes it. Man, too, on the tide of fortune, takes to evil. When that evil becomes full, heaven strikes it. This is when heaven uses fighting for its ends. Ten thousand people are oppressed by the wickedness of one man, and by killing that one man, the other ten thousand are given new life. So there, the sword which kills is indeed a blade which gives life. There is righteousness in using the arts of fighting in this way. Without righteousness, it is merely a question of killing other people and avoiding being killed by them. Consider carefully what the arts of fighting are for. This is like the Western tradition of the just war, yet, as in the West, there is a tradition of something higher. The Mongols conquered North China about A.D. 1230, and in another forty years had control of South China too. Kublai Khan then prepared two great invasions of Japan, both of which were repulsed by the samurai government of Kamakura. Altogether, the fighting in China lasted nearly a century. Sometime towards the end of this period, a great Chinese official sought an interview with the Zen master, and it happened that from the temple they could see the camps of the Mongol conquerors, then preparing yet another campaign. The fighting is endless, lamented the official. It goes on and on, and there's no way to stop it. Fighting can be stopped, said the Zen master. How? The teacher came up to him and gave him a backhander on the face. The official was startled and furious. This rude old man, the old devil, I know I asked him, but what's the point of that? I suppose it's one of their damned Zen riddles, supposed to have some meaning. Idiots. No, it must have some meaning. There must be some meaning in it.
the teacher, who had been looking at him closely, said, You stopped it. Tortoise. After the tortoise had won the race against the hare, the other animals began to consult him about improving their running speeds. They had not seen what happened during the race. Half of them had been at the start and the other half at the finishing tape. The first group had seen the hare dashing off into the distance, and the other group had seen the tortoise crawl across the finishing line, and the hare running up second. No one had actually seen the tortoise moving fast, but they came to believe, as the only explanation, that he must have gone into some sort of overdrive during the main part of the race slowing down when he had passed the hare and was leading by a huge margin. As the animals had no watchers, none of them knew just how long the race had taken. No one listened to the hare's story. A loser always has an excuse. The tortoise, at first, used to deny that he had any special powers. But they said so often, Oh, that's your modesty! that in the end he began to believe in them himself. His friends made him a victory medal, which he always wore round his neck. He became more and more confident, and then arrogant, and finally got himself into a situation where he more or less had to challenge the hare to a new match. I've done it once and I'll do it again, he confided to his friends. Only the cockatoo, who had flown over the course during the first race and seen what happened, thought the tortoise would lose. The others said to him, You're mad. Look what he did last time. And he replied, Look what he is. He may have won a race, but he's still only a tortoise. The day of the race came. When the hare crossed the finishing line, the tortoise had gone six feet three and a half inches. The animals dispersed without looking at each other, 
as the cockatoo screamed with laughter. Eighty percent is perfection. If actions, even the best of actions, are accompanied with the thought, "I am doing good," the benevolent man may become depressed. For instance, UN medical teams working in primitive areas have greatly reduced infant mortality by giving some simple instructions to the midwives. Yet it was found later that the population of the villages. Had not increased. The reason was that there was not enough food to support any more. So the babies saved at birth died a lingering death of starvation a little later. Even when actions are completely successful in actualizing their hoped-for results, there may be unforeseen and unwelcome effects. A saying of the Soto Zen sect is: "Eighty percent is perfection." They do not explain such phrases, but a parallel comment runs something like this: "Do things well, but not very well. If you do a thing well, others will see it and think, 'Yes, that is a good job. That is what I should have done if I had been doing it.' But if it has been done very well, they may have doubts whether they could have reached that level." Then some of them may try to find something wrong with what you have done. If they cannot find anything wrong with it, they will try to find something wrong with you. If they cannot find something wrong with you, they will invent something, and that is bad for them. So, don't put them in that situation. There is also the effect on you. If you have done something well, you finish it. And forget it. But if you have done it very well, you are much more liable to begin to think, "Why, I have done that really very well," and then perhaps your stride will lengthen a little, and your voice will be heard afar, and that will be bad for you. So, do things well. But if you do them very well. Be very careful too. Grace of God. Some followers of yoga tend to think that it is somehow higher not to believe in any god. There is no god other than the higher self of man," they say, throwing their heads back proudly. This is fine as long as circumstances go quite well. It sounds all right to a young person, barefoot and more or less permanently camping, who is nevertheless sure of middle-class parents, or at any rate. 
the welfare state to fall back on. It may sound all right in a comfortable flat, surrounded by imported luxuries. But when in real difficulties, facing serious illness or imprisonment, or even heavy responsibilities, it begins to ring hollow. Those who say it may find that they have promoted themselves to the sixth form without being able to tackle the sixth form syllabus. The more his spiritual training progresses, the more a student comes to recognize the grace of God. Without some glimpse of it, he is never free from an inner anxiety, however much he may conceal it from others, or even from himself, by bold gestures. While he has the anxiety, he can make little progress. Carefully practiced physical relaxation exercises do not remove it, though they may mask its effects for the time being. Still, mere belief in the grace of God without spiritual training can also be a cul-de-sac. This is because the distorted idea of it is used as a cloak for laziness. Like all spiritual ideas, this one has to be thought through right to the end, something which takes considerable courage. An experienced teacher is a great help at these times, because he can bring the hidden obstacles and evasions out into the light. A man in Japan had an urge to find a spiritual teacher. But after going to see a number of well-known teachers in various towns, he had still not found one with whom he could, as it is said, make a connection. One day, he happened to hear that a new priest was coming to the neglected temple of Kanon in his own small town. Kanon is a bodhisattva of compassion who perceives the appeals for help of all beings in their distress and whose wisdom finds ways to help them, sometimes miraculously. The name Kanon means the one who perceives the voices. When this seeker entered the temple and met the new priest, he had an experience like an electric shock and realized that this was to be the temple where he could focus the devotion which he now felt for the first time. He attended the services regularly and spent some of his spare time and money helping to clean and repair the temple. After some weeks of this, the priest said to him, You should now begin to repeat the invocation of Holy Canon for an hour every day. I can show you how to do it. Every Buddhist must do some form of meditation, and this can be the form for you. These words jarred on the new devotee. He made no reply, but a few days later, when they were tidying up after the morning service, he said to the priest, 
It seems to me that to undertake practices like invocation would be to deny the grace of holy canon which brought me here. All my searches were of no avail. It was when I was not searching, not making any personal human efforts, that by the grace of canon you came here. By the grace of canon I heard about it, and by the grace of canon I had that experience which has changed my life. Am I now to say to holy canon, I shall resume my personal efforts again, as your grace may not suffice to take me the rest of the way? The priest made no reply, but invited him to stay on for the midday meal. This was generally a simple affair of rice and a couple of vegetables. That day, however, after hearing his invitation accepted, the priest gave some money to his wife with a few whispered words, and when the lunch was served, it included some rare dainties, deliciously cooked. The man felt his mouth water as it was set before him. The priest said the usual invocation to Canon, and then he and his wife immediately began to eat without waiting for their guest. When the latter looked at the tray before him, he found to his surprise that there were no chopsticks on it. For a while he was too embarrassed to say anything, but as they did not seem to notice that he was not eating, he finally blurted out, Excuse me, but there are no chopsticks. Chopsticks, said the priest wonderingly. Whatever would you want with chopsticks? Why, I need them to pick up the food. Surely you are not intending to pick up that food, are you? said the priest with an expression of surprise. Well, that would be a denial of the kindness of my wife, who has got this special food for you, and cooked it specially for you, and set it out on the tray for you, and brought the tray for you, and put it in front of you. If you now say you want chopsticks, you are as good as saying that her service is not complete. Surely you should wait till she puts it in your mouth, shouldn't you? The man turned scarlet and hung his head. The wife gently put a pair of chopsticks on the tray, and the priest patted his arm and said, Please, eat your meal and enjoy it. That night, the guest asked for instructions in how to say the invocation of Canon, which the priest gave him with great affection, adding, What you cannot do by your own power, holy Canon will always do for you. But this little thing which you can do, the holy Bodhisattva leaves for you out of courtesy, so that you can have the joy of cooperating with the one who sees the cries of the whole world and helps the distress of those who utter them.
Will of God Allied to the doctrine of the grace of God is the doctrine of the will of God, and this too can be a stumbling block to those who use it as an excuse. A famous judge in India at the end of the last century was well known as a devotee of God, and once a thief who was brought before him tried to make use of the fact. The charge was completely proved, and the thief made no attempt to deny it, but said instead, Your Honour, I only wish to say this. When the opportunity came to steal that, I felt an irresistible impulse to do it, and I thought to myself that it must be the will of God that I should steal it. And it was the will of God, surely, Your Honour, because otherwise it couldn't have happened. Are you denying that you had any responsibility? asked the judge. All I'm saying, Your Honour, is that it must have been the will of God, or it couldn't have happened. When I felt that impulse coming up in me, surely I was right to bow my head before the will of God. God gives us many impulses, said the judge and he gives us the power of choosing between them, so that we may show our reverence for his commandments and our love of our fellow men. But he gave me this impulse, reposted the thief. I have heard that your honour says God is in each man, playing different roles. Well, one of the names of Holy Shiv is Thief. He is called thief because he steals our sins. But you were stealing things belonging to poor people. It is stealing just the same. In that little shop, in the middle of the night, I was the Lord as Shiv, and my role was the thief. Reverence to the Lord in the little shop, in the middle of the night, Acting out the role of thief, said the judge slowly. But here, in my little court, in the day, the Lord is playing a different role. Yours is a petty crime, but I have a wide discretion. I feel rising in me an impulse to impose on you the heaviest sentence. His voice began to boom, because in me he is playing the role of the just ruler, the mighty controller and orderer of the universe, reverence to the Lord in the form of the great terror, the upraised thunderbolt which preserves order in the world. Stop! Stop! cried the thief. I withdraw my plea. Please... Treat me as a sinful human being. The judge laughed and gave him a light sentence. Tea.
Not long ago, a Japanese tea ceremony master made a visit to a certain foreign country to give demonstrations. His hosts found a beautiful garden with two pavilions in it. In one, the guests were to assemble, and then a group of fifty would go to the other pavilion, where the master was to demonstrate the ceremony. After about forty minutes, the audience would change. Those who had witnessed it went back, and a new group walked the hundred yards to the master's pavilion to see a new performance. He commented when he returned to Japan, "In that country, the men shout and the women scream. When I heard the very first group coming across shouting and screaming, I thought." These people will never understand the spirit of tea, but to my amazement, they sat very still and attentive, and there was a good atmosphere. I thought they have understood the spirit of tea after all. They left quietly, but as they recrossed to the first pavilion, they burst out shouting and screaming just as before. I felt quite discouraged, and that my time had been wasted. But then I thought, no, that is wrong. They will never be the same again. They have been able to sit still in peace for half an hour. Now their old habits have taken hold again, but they will remember, in a corner of their minds, that half an hour of peace. And one day. Perhaps years afterwards, when they feel deeply disturbed over something, they will think back to that time of tea, and it will help them. Chains. A man said to his teacher, "I have tried to break my habit of going to wine shops and brothels, but I can't do it. I am in chains to my nature. You can't expect a man in chains to do anything." The teacher met him going to the town one evening. He was smartly dressed and walking briskly in anticipation. The teacher said, "You don't look like a man in chains." The blue cloth. Sometimes, in a spiritual group, a dispute develops over practically nothing. Although it is so trivial, people feel strongly about it. 
No one seems to know the cause of what is happening or what to do. When a certain teacher first founded his group, they were poor and had only a cheap brown cloth over the altar on which was the form of the god. They worshipped with prayers and mantras for the first half of the meeting, and then, when the minds were, to some extent, pacified, they meditated on the Upanishadic text. O holy divinity, I am what thou art, and thou, O holy divinity, art what I am. The teacher had once mentioned that to see or meditate on the color blue has a calming effect on the mind, and added that blue was the best color for an altar cloth. This remark was taken down, but nothing was done at the time, because they were so poor. Then it was forgotten. Many years later, a new member reading over the old records came across it. He bought a blue silk cloth and had it beautifully embroidered with the mantra of the divinity. He presented it to the man whose responsibility was the altar cloth, who accepted it without comment and put it away. But an old brown cloth continued to be used. The new member tried to accept this, but after a few weeks he went to the head disciple, told him what had happened and said, I can't worship, I can't concentrate on the prayers, I can't keep my mind on the mantra, I can't meditate. All the time I'm thinking of that altar cloth and saying to myself, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. So the chief disciple went to the altar cloth man and said, now you have to accept this. He can't focus his mind because this little thing has become a great thing to him. But this is against our whole tradition replied the altar-cloth man. We've always had a brown cloth. The teacher may perhaps have said something about a blue cloth just in passing, but very likely it was taken down incorrectly. We've always had a brown cloth. If we give way on this point, there will be pressure to change another one too, and in the end nothing of the tradition will remain. The chief disciple replied, Now we've both been here a long time, haven't we? and we know what our teacher thinks of rituals, just a little to help calm the mind, but no reliance on them. And this which is happening is disturbing his mind. He hasn't enough experience to learn from it. Please accept this business as it has happened, and put the blue cloth on the altar each time. Now the splendid embroidered blue cloth was on the altar each time the group met. It was much admired. After a few more weeks, the new member again asked for an interview with the head disciple, who said, What is it now? You have what you want. Yes, was the bewildered reply, but I still can't worship. I can't concentrate on the prayers. I can't keep my mind on the mantra. I can't meditate. All the time I'm seeing that altar cloth and thinking to myself, it's right, it's right, it's right. Ah, said the chief disciple. It's good that you're aware of what's happening. Well now, we'll put the old cloth back until it's worn out, and then in the natural way we'll replace it with the blue one. Perhaps we've both learnt from this. 
we have learnt about the blue cloth. That's something valuable that had got overlooked somehow. And you? Perhaps you've learnt something too? It's easy to fall into worshipping an altar cloth. Sweeping. A foreigner applied to enter a Zen temple. He had made no preparations and could neither sit in the formal posture without pain nor understand what was said. The teacher told him, through the interpreter, that it would be a very hard time. He persisted and finally was allowed to come in. As usual in such cases, he felt that he must make a special contribution to the life of the temple and all he could do was the physical work. He made it a rule to get up very early and undertake the daily chores, beginning with sweeping the garden. He discovered that the head monk did not always rouse the monks at the fixed time. Sometimes he let them sleep on when they had had a difficult day. The foreigner, however, was always up. Slowly, he came to resent the fact that others were not following the rule as he was. He wrote a short account of the experience afterwards, in which he said that he was beginning, frankly, to hate the monks as he worked and they slept. When he came to near the sleeping quarters, sometimes his broom would accidentally knock the veranda. When his anger reached boiling point, he spoke to the teacher who said, Why are you doing this? He said, I am following the rule as part of my spiritual training. If it is simply a question of your own spiritual training, it does not matter to you what the others do or do not do. There must be something else. Well, I suppose in a way, I am setting an example, an example which, I am afraid, is entirely wasted. The example you are setting is sweeping and cleaning in a spirit of pride and resentment. That is not a good example, and it is right that it is not followed. How should one set an example then? When the Buddha gets up and picks up the Buddha broom and sweeps the Buddha dust from the face of the Buddha earth and no one knows about it, there is the example which will have an effect. The Needle in the Haystack
spiritual teacher in India said to two pupils, Imagine that what you are seeking is represented by an iron needle buried somewhere in a haystack. You must find that needle. Think it over and tell me tomorrow how you would go about looking for it. This will give you an insight into the spiritual search. When they came back the next day, one said, I should set fire to the haystack and watch it burn to ashes, and then wait for the wind to blow them away. In the end, I should see the needle lying before me. That is the path of the recluse, commented the teacher, who gives up everything. It is a true path, if heroically pursued right to the end, but from one point of view it might seem a pity to waste all the hay. Then the other pupil gave his answer. I should take the straws one by one from the stack, look at each and feel it with my fingers, and put it behind me. Finally I must find the needle, even if I have to transfer the whole haystack from in front of me to behind me. That is the path of pure philosophical analysis, said the teacher. It too is a true path. Each incident, each thought of the haystack of life is scrutinized carefully as it passes from future to past time. It is seen clearly and then put aside. The path requires immense patience and detachment combined with a power of continuous awareness. Is there any other way? they asked. There is. It makes use of yet another fact about the iron needle. One of you took advantage of the power of iron to survive fire. Relative to the hay, it is immortal. The other one used the fact that iron has a certain color and that it is hard in the fingers. But there is something else about the thing you are looking for, which is that it is magnetic. And this is something which the seeker can acquire also. If you spend some time creating a powerful magnet, then suspend it on a thread from your hand and walk round the haystack, pausing frequently to stand quite still. After not very long, there will be a tiny quiver in the magnet you hold. There is a quiver, too, in the iron you are seeking, but you do not know about that. If you follow the tiny movement of your magnet, it will become stronger. If you do not follow it, it will disappear. Following the path so indicated, you will be drawn directly to where the needle is hidden. With a little digging, you will come close to it. Then the magnet you hold and the needle you are seeking will leap joyously to become one, and your search will be rewarded.
In our ancient Sanskrit language, one word for magnet is ayaskanta mani, which means the mani or precious stone which is loved by iron, and which loves iron. Create and cultivate a great love in yourself for what you are spiritually seeking, using the traditional forms which are given to you for just that purpose. Know that the quiver of love in you is being met by a quiver of love from the beyond. If there were no quiver of love there, you would feel no quiver of love here, just as the magnet would not tremble unless there were also a response in the iron. The attraction of love, as you develop it in yourself, will lead you and become stronger and stronger. At first, you will perceive it most clearly when you are very still in meditation, like the man standing very still holding the magnet. But soon, you will feel it all the time. You will still have to do some digging into your haystack, but you will know where to dig. Finally, what you are longing for will leap joyously to meet you, and you will leap joyously to meet it, and you will become what you have been seeking. Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brolly, Judith Clark, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adyatma Yoga Trust.